Well, this is Current Yield Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. I'm Jim Grant, and uh, with me as always is the great Deputy Editor of Grants, Evan Lorenz, uh, Henry French, uh, as per usual, at the control panel, and joining us today is um, none other than Douglas Sifu, the uh, Chief Executive Officer of Virtue Financial. And Doug will be getting to you in just one moment. But uh, Evan, now you know, um, uh, Elon Musk is, I think, has never won Entrepreneur of the Month here at Grand's Interest Rate Observer. Is that correct? Longstanding for, for at least five or six years. Yeah, I think he's, uh, I thought that his uh, comment on working from home was, uh, was pretty fabulous. You, you could quote, or semi-quote, you can pretend to work someplace else. <laughs> No, it's okay. But you you sent me something more that was kind of that uh, it leads me to think that there might be a traffic jam of people returning to their Tesla offices. Yes, uh, Elon Musk apparently submitted a memo to his employees saying that about ten percent of them might get the um, pink slip. Did he say uh, who? <laughs> did he name names or just uh, just uh, let the the impression settle in? Let it marinate in the staff. I, I would just let it marinate myself. Just uh, um, might uh, quicken the pace of uh, work, shorten the time in the water cooler, you know, just to get a little more starch in the organization. Um, I'd guess probably the later. Yeah. So, uh, as I said, uh, uh, CEO of Virtue Financial is with us today, Doug Sifu. Doug, uh, I'm going to parenthetically pause. Am I pronouncing Sifu correctly or am I bungling? You, you, are, you are doing a great job. Okay, yes, so Sifu. far. So yeah. far. My grandmother used to say Chifu, but we Americanized it. So, yeah. See, okay. Um, <laughs> uh, Doug is uh, by uh, training and longstanding as a, uh, a lawyer. He was a partner at uh, Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Wharton, and Garrison, M&A lawyer of, uh, of uh, many uh, deals and a great professional recognition and and a proud Columbia University Lion Phi Beta Kappa Law School and uh, I think by extension, Doug, a fan of the Ivy League champion Columbia Lion baseball team. Am I correct? I'm a huge fan. Yeah. yeah okay. That's our best team sport. Yeah. Well done, Jim. Yeah. Just wanted to get that out. Yeah. Um, but uh, Evan, you organized this uh, fabulous podcast, and I'm going to give you the honor of, uh, to continue the baseball metaphor, of lobbing in the first lollipop. <laughs> to, we'll get to the hard stuff later. Yeah, I'll, 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 I've got a slider or two, but uh, Evan has a question for you. So Evan, commence fire. Yeah, so this popped up in the news last week. Um, an ICE executive at an industry event said that one of their major clients almost defaulted on an exchange in March of 2020. And that stood out to me because a lot of the post-financial crisis regulation over the last decade has been trying to move more and more traded products into central counterparties like ICE. Um, but if there was almost a major default in March of 2020, that kind of speaks to more fragility in the system than I think a lot of people expect. What almost happened then and have the problems that led to a, a near default on a major exchange been fixed? Or is this something that might be a potential problem you know, in the coming cycle? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and thanks very much for having me. And that is a little bit of a slider. I like it. You guys, you guys are throwing it right out there. I mean, to be honest, I'm not familiar with the details. It wasn't virtue financial. The concept of mutualizing uh, as opposed to having bilateral risk in a system uh, has, I mean, from my perspective, is clearly the superior way to deal with trading risk, right? I mean, a lot of the issues from the financial crisis of 2008 was really the bilateral nature of a lot of uh, swaps and, and CDS products and things like that. And so a lot of that risk has been mutualized. Um, I mean, you, you saw the impact and I think the power of mutualization with what happened in to Robinhood in January of 2021. I mean, their issue was 
that they got overextended, if you will, on behalf of their customers with the equities clearinghouse known as the NSCC. And really, the NSCC did a wonderful job there because they basically said, listen, you don't have enough capital. We're not going to shut you down. We're going to allow you to take de-risking trades and give you the opportunity to go raise additional capital, which Robinhood did very successfully, and they got back on their feet. And there's obviously been a lot of urban legends about and conspiracy theories about what happened there. But actually, the system worked incredibly well. And if that risk had been, and they were one of our largest customers, right? And so the issue of whether or not we were exposed to Robinhood as a counterparty, right? Because they're sending us their order flow into other firms as well. That was effectively taken off the table because the NSCC took this action and said to Virtu and to the rest of the equities marketplace, we got it. We got it. We got this under control. You don't have to worry. You can keep uh, doing business with Robinhood and you can keep trading on exchanges, et cetera. And the market functioned uh, in a very fine, fluid fashion as a result of that. So I would argue that uh, mutualization of risk and clearinghouses properly constructed and properly capitalized make a lot of sense. On the contrast, I mean, what happened out in Asia on the, on the LME uh, with regard to nickel and whatnot, when they busted a bunch of nickel prices, and apparently there was a significant margin deficiency there. That's exactly how markets shouldn't operate. You can't just allow trading to happen for three, four hours and then say, oops, it didn't really happen. So you know, there's good examples and there's bad examples, but I do think ultimately mutualization and clearinghouses make a lot of sense. Doug, um, Virtu is, is uh, like ubiquitous. I see that uh, equities, commodities, currencies, options, fixed income, uh, 230 exchanges, and in more countries than our members of the United Nations. That's my understanding of the scope of the business. Um, so you are, I would suppose, um, an advocate of price discovery and uh, freely, okay, we have been living for the past dozen or so years in a regime of interest rate suppression. Interest rates, now I'm talking my book as the uh, owner of Grant's Interest Rate Observer, the most important consequential prices in the world of finance. And we have been living in a world of suppressed and manipulated and generally um, unauthentic critical prices. So um, now the Fed is proposing to... Uh, kind of uh, get with the program and align its administrative, administered rates with the more or less discovered rates that are prevailing elsewhere in many of the markets in which you operate. What do you suppose is going to be the consequence of the realignment of rates with something like reality after a dozen years worth of make-believe? Yeah, <laughs> it's a great question. And yeah, just to take a step back, I mean, that, that is what Virtue is all about, which is about, you know, we, we describe ourselves as a global automated electronic market-making firm and, and the whole concept behind Virtue is let's be agnostic to markets and direction of markets and try to figure out what the right price is for an instrument at a moment in time in, in a specified quantity. As you indicated, Jim, we try to make two-sided prices in literally hundreds of marketplaces in just about every asset class that can be traded more or less you know, in an electronic automated fashion around right. the world because somebody has to be sort of at, if you will, the tip of the spear. And that's kind of the idea behind Virtue, take technology and automation to provide that very, very important and we think uh, valuable price discovery service to the marketplace. And so to get back to your to your larger question around you know, central banks and our central bank in particular, and it's just going to be a monumental rejiggering, if you will, of, and this is obviously a good thing for my business because there's going to be all kinds of portfolio shifting and realignment of interest as people get off the, the crack, if you will, of the Fed, as you say, over the last dozen years. Uh, and we've seen that in markets where you have these very sharp moves and we see it as portfolios, excuse me, rip through the marketplace and we have to deal with them um, both as a principal and acting as an agent on behalf of our you know, hundreds of clients around the world. So um, you know, from a from a selfish virtue perspective, 
it's obviously going to be an, an interesting time as these pockets of volatility kind of transverse the interconnected financial marketplaces from a more micro perspective in terms of like the debt capital markets and, and corporates and the treasury market here in the United States. I'm, I'm concerned because a lot of the regulation, the overreaction on the regulation coming out of the financial crisis in 2008, and you may find this a little surprising I'm about to say what I said was, I, I think they handcuffed a lot of the large market makers, i.e. a lot of the big broker dealers, uh, the big banks, in terms of capital restrictions and Dodd-Frank and some of the idiocy around Volcker that really had nothing to do with the financial crisis. And uh, you know we're going to see what happens over the next couple of years as a lot of you know paper has to be um, you know pushed through the system. So you're going to have air pockets. You're going to have people screaming, there's not enough liquidity. You're going to have people blaming high-frequency trading when it's got nothing to do with that. And really what it comes down to is just overzealous regulation and people trying to um, punish banks for things, frankly, that um, that at least regard with regards to the treasury and the debt markets, they had that had nothing to do with the financial crisis. It's a long-winded answer. I hope I answered your question, but I kind of jumped around a little bit there. Yep, very, very responsive indeed. That's actually been a theme that we at Grants have been trying to tease out. We actually view um, the September 2019 repo backup as kind of a good yep. indication of the problems of Dodd Frank because. After the financial crisis, we decided that we never wanted banks to fail again. And the way we did yep. that was by trapping tremendous amounts of capital and liquidity in banks. Yep. But it comes out turn when the market turns, that liquidity and capital stays trapped in banks and doesn't make it out to the markets. And it seems like we've had bigger air pockets in the last couple of years than we used to have pre-financial crisis. Has, I, I guess, the, the structure and the liquidity in markets become much more fragile than I guess it used to be? Yeah, I mean, fragile in some markets and other markets hasn't, it, it not as fragile. I mean, obviously, in the, in the cash equities market where you have more centralized clearing and, and, and smaller positions get moved over periods of time, there's been you know, alternative players like Virtu and Citadel and others have jumped into the fray. In terms of the larger you know, kind of debt capital markets fixed income, yeah, I completely agree with what you said, Evan. I think you know, the, the you know, bad facts make bad law. We, we saw this with, uh, with WorldCom and, and uh, the Arthur Anderson collapse, in my view, like you know, Sarbanes-Oxley was a gross overreaction to that situation. And the same thing happened here in the financial crisis. You know, don't let a good crisis go to waste. Put all kinds of restrictions on banks because they're bad actors, even though like collateralized mortgage obligations had nothing to do with like, you know, the treasury market. But, you know, uh, you know, trap a lot of capital in large financial institutions. And what ends up happening? Well, the, the lubricant, if you will, of the system is still largely going to be provided by the large Banks and the broker dealers. You can you can talk about Virtu, Citadel, and all of our competitors, but if you aggregate all of us together, we ain't Bank of America, right? So, um, what the government has done in terms of handcuffing all these large financial institutions, I don't think that we've seen the full implications of it. I think there will, as I said a moment ago, uh, I concur with you, which is well, we will continue to see these anomalies in the marketplace, and regulators will scratch their heads and point fingers. But really, ultimately, it comes down to not allowing the marketplace to do what the marketplace does very well. And when governments pick winners and losers and put um, regulations and restrictions in the, into markets where they don't really understand what the knock-on effect is going to be, you know, that's what ends up happening. Doug, uh, the, the, uh, the government securities market, the U.S. government securities market, is uh, reputed to be the most liquid uh, in the world, certainly the most important, say they, say everyone, says everyone. 
But is there not something anachronistic about the way it's structured? I have in mind the uh, two dozen or so, I guess, rather one or two, more than two dozen so-called primary dealers uh, that are charged with uh, implementing uh, you know, two-way markets and uh, helping the Fed uh, implement its policy, right? So if the primary dealer system did not exist, would it be necessary to invent it or could something else evolve spontaneously from uh, entrepreneurs like yourself and others who would see a way to make a better market in this most important asset? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, like, again, my analogy back to kind of the equities market, which, you know, 30, 40 years ago, you know, didn't function as nearly as fluidly as it does today. Why is that the case? Well, really, it comes down to a couple of things. One is information. So in the equities market, we have a consolidated tape called the SIP. People say it's not fast enough, whatever it is. But at the end of the day, everybody has kind of the same real-time information with regard to every listed security and indeed a bunch of you know over-the-counter securities at the same moment in time. So real-time public reporting, uh, like in the trace system, would ameliorate this lack of information. And technology has evolved greatly in the last 30 years. I mean, my company is only 15 years old and uh, you know we're responsible on many days for a fifth of the U.S. Uh, equities market, right? So think about how drastically and dramatically the world has changed uh, because of transparency, availability of market data and technology. So why those tenants are not applied to arguably the most important marketplace, right? For all of us Americans, the government securities market is um, a little bit, you know, obviously above my pay grade, but you're right. It would seem to be certainly an anachronistic, you know, clubby kind of system that goes back, you know, 50 years, right? Or longer. Yeah. Uh, Doug, you are um, an alumnus of the um, of the private equity world. Yeah. Uh, most important uh, transactor and facilitator of transactions, and your role as a partner of Paul Weiss. And here you are, um, a champion of price discovery in the public markets. And what what Evan and I have been observing is a, is a seeming yearning of many many people in finance to uh, get out of the business of or the arena of price discovery, private equity being a prime example. There's a new grade of a new kind of uh, real estate investment trust that uh, is not publicly. Um, it's uh, you, you kind of send in your money and sponsors may or may not make a bid come a time you want to get out. As someone who saw the private equity world evolving and growing and now becoming so big and uh, important, how do you compare that uh, worldview, that uh, zeitgeist with the public world? Well, it's interesting. I've been asked that, you know, like just to extend the question, you know, we're a public company and people say, are you happy you're a public company? Why are you a public company? And like, why did you do it? And, you know, if you could do your life over again, would you do it? And it's interesting. You ask a great question because I I started as a lawyer in, in 1990 and I saw the maturation of, uh, you know, the private markets. Obviously, as you mentioned, I was a private equity lawyer. We took private equity money at Virtu. And the interesting thing in the last 10 years is you've seen um, this uh, graying of the line, if you will, between public and private valuations and investment. I mean, 10 years ago, you wouldn't have large asset managers like a Tiro, for example, or a Vanguard making meaningful private investments in you know, some of these unicorn style companies. So that just didn't exist. And so it was, there was always the, you know, those types of investments would have been done as part of an IPO or a follow-on. And again, why, why has that happened? Why have you seen less companies going public? Why are people delaying going public, et cetera? You know, some of it, again, not to beat a dead horse and I'm not a crazy 
you know, anti-government libertarian type, but some of leave, it... Leave that, to, leave that to me, Doug. Yeah, okay. Some of that... <laughs> I'm a middle-of-the-road guy. I don't know if there was a middle-of-the-road anymore in the world, but I'm sort of a middle-of-the-road guy. But anyhow, you know, a lot of that has to do with overregulation. It, it is not fun to be a public company. I mean, I, I'm a lawyer, so I can probably handle it a lot better than other CEOs, but the amount of like, yeah. of just brain damage and wasted money and effort is astounding, even for a smallish company like Virtu. I can't imagine what it's like at larger companies. I'm going to uh, take one historical exception to your uh, to your statement that um, T. Rowe and the others would not be doing private things in a world of yesteryear. In the late 1960s, so I was then 70 years old, 1960, uh, there was something called letter stock. Letter stock was, uh, was an inherently illiquid stock. And this was a bull market phenomenon, right? Because people had such confidence in the continued arc of, uh, of uh, rising valuations, rising prices, there was no need to worry overly about liquidity. So uh, hence the, okay, so now after a dozen years, let us call it, of manipulated downside, manipulated interest rates, rising valuations, and this word financialization, which I think is actually rather apt, financialization of everything we have, lo and behold, T. Rowe, et cetera, et cetera, et al., et al., getting into private things because I think it's at some, it's some level of their of their financial brains, they think it's going to be fine. There'll never be a call for something that's in. Yeah. But, yeah. No. Yes. Yeah. No. I, I think there's definitely some validity to it. I, I'm, I'm thinking more from a company's perspective. It, when you have availability like that of capital, like why even bother trying to go public? Right. It's sort of like you know, it's a, who wants the the hassle. I mean, every time I, I read our 10Q, I have to sign this attestation for which I have criminal liability. You know, and I've got you know. Uh, folks at the SEC now suggesting that I need to spend tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars examining like the impacts of climate change on Little Virtu Financial, which is an electronic market making firm, right? It just makes absolutely no sense. We have disclosure on like, you know, do we have uh, uh, war minerals and, you know, in the Sudan in our 10Q because of some other, you know, political nonsense that someone at the SEC wanted to put forth. And then you look at some well, of the proxy well, what proposals about it? now. Do you, do you? I'm sorry? Do you? No, we... we, we <laughs> We're long zinc and short nickel right now. So, I mean, it's just, I mean, it's just, these just the silliness of our government. I mean, the SEC has three, now I'm going to go off on my diatribe. Okay. okay. The okay. SEC has three mandates. One is investor protection, two is fair and orderly markets, and three is to make sure that we have the ability to raise capital in this country, right? In my view, they're failing on all three of them because the market has evolved in a way that's fair and orderly, and now they're trying to get involved and screw it up. And all this SEC led by Gensler is trying to do is is to make it more difficult for companies to raise capital. And it's, it's sort of antithetical politicalization of the SEC and the, and the capital raising process in the country is completely antithetical to the mission of the SEC. But uh, this administration doesn't seem to give a crap. What are some of the examples of things that Gensler is doing incorrectly now? Because, I mean, I, I'm more familiar with some of the past. How much time you got? Probably... How much time you got? <laughs> Can we extend this for two hours? Indeed. No one has a business like yours with all of its strengths and challenges. To succeed, you need a hiring partner that adapts to your needs. You need Indeed. So it's a hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's powerful hiring partner is one that can help you do it all. Find great talent faster, time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match assessments and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job, according to Indeed Data Us. Now, um, Indeed uh, makes it easy to start hiring. I mean, you, you want to hire, and uh, you ought to hire, and this uh, helps you to do just that. It takes 10 minutes or less 
for most small and medium-sized businesses, employers, to uh, post a job according to Indeed data. That's a source you cannot quarrel with. So uh, start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to update your job post at Indeed.com grant. So claim your $75 credit now at Indeed.com grant. Indeed.com grant. Terms and conditions apply, of course. Paper qualified applicant not available for all users. Need to hire? Well, you need Indeed. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, what I would say is the SEC has become like a political apparatus. So uh, examples are, I just mentioned one of them was, you know, this long preliminary proposal they have uh, out on climate change. I mean, there's always been the concept in the 34 Act, and I've learned this in law school and I live it as a CEO, that you need to disclose what is material to a reasonable investor. So if issues around carbon and climate change, et cetera, are material to an investor in Virtu Financial, then they'll be included in my 10K and 10Q. I don't need that you know, level of detail prescribed for me as a fiduciary or an executive officer of a public company. So why is that proposal out there? It's obviously just a, you know, a left-wing political agenda item that has been adopted by the SEC. More near and dear to my heart is, uh, you know, the noise he's made around market structure and uh, retail trading and payment for order flow and all this other stuff that he's been talking about. There's not been a proposal yet, but I understand one might be coming. And so essentially, they're acting on their own volition and without a plaintiff, if you will, without anybody complaining about problems, they're you know, in interjecting themselves into public disclosure, i.e. capital raising and now uh, market structure. Whereas, you know, it just seems to me this is, as I said, it's antithetical to the mission of the SEC. And it's, you know, in my view, I guess I've been doing this 15 years and I was a lawyer for 18 years before that. This is far and away the most political and, uh, and, and ineffective and actually counter-effective SEC that I've ever seen. The real big dichotomy to me is on the one hand, they want to do all these big picture things like climate change. But on the other hand, they're not doing simple things like prosecuting CEOs who appear to be breaking CEOs. Exactly. And, exactly. and that drives me crazy. Exactly. I mean, like all this stuff around the meme stock, you know, uh, Robin Hood, GameStop, AMC, like the market structure worked fine. People put their money up, they invested, there was continuous price discovery, no one defaulted, everyone got their, you know, trades confirmed, et cetera, et cetera. So there's nothing wrong with the market structure. What's wrong is there were obviously criminals in chat rooms and whatnot. Uh, you know, the old boiler room, you guys have seen it for a long time. And it, it's kind of what was happening. There's no reason those stocks went to the moon and back down. Those are the actors that they should be going after, not attempting to pin this on like Citadel Securities. They're the, my biggest competitor. They did absolutely nothing wrong. They're an amazing firm, performed their services and provided great two-sided prices. I know because we compete against them every day, but yet they're vilified by the government. And then there's all kinds of conspiracy theories about, about you know how they conspired with Robin Hood. It's nonsense. It's nonsense. And rather than the SEC stepping up and saying, look, it's nonsense, the marketplace performed the way it performed. They kind of don't say anything and they come out with this GameStop report that's kind of, you know, political because they don't want to let Citadel off the hook. It's just it's just not the way to run a railroad. So as I said before, it's become this this political organization as opposed to this regulatory body. And I think that's just a shame. It really is. Uh, Doug, do you have any uh, thoughts as to uh, the next 
possible big problem in the public marketplace. You know, um, way back when you could see the excesses building, of course, in residential real estate. You could see the uh, non sequitur of some of the value propositions advanced in these structured mortgage products. And uh, that was uh, that was a thing in 2004, yeah. 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. Um, what about today? I mean, is there other, are there particular pockets of the market that strike you as especially problematic? Yeah, I mean, I, I think history tends to repeat itself, Jim. So I, I don't a lot, a lot of the stuff around like you know crypto and some of these meme stocks. I think those are they're going to get headlines, but I, I don't think they're systemically relevant. I mean, there would be sad and unfortunate like retail investors that'll lose a bunch of money, and that's obviously not something that shouldn't happen. And we should have investor education, all that kind of stuff. But I think putting aside the politics of that, um, I don't think any that's not going to be a systemic challenge because, as I said, all of that. All of those prices will be discovered and, and the trades will settle. I think, you know, a larger issue, and, and you've pointed to it, is over the last dozen years of feeding off the Fed. And I've seen it uh, myself in terms of just the change in the dynamic of the credit market. So there's going to be a lot of, uh, you know, quote unquote, investment grade debt, I think, that's going to need to get significantly repriced and puked out. So we could see, you know, I'm old enough to remember, uh, you know, doing a lot of fallen angels from the mid to late 90s that needed to be like repriced and, and uh, you know, a lot of debt to equity kind of exchange, uh, you know, uh, transactions and things like that. So if I was running a law firm these days, which I'm not, I would build up my insolvency practice and my restructuring practice because I think we're going to see a lot of that. We're going to shift from, you know, take all my litigators and make them into bankruptcy lawyers or something like that because I think, unfortunately, we're going to see a lot of corporate defaults, a lot of like, you know, double B paper quickly becoming C paper and a lot of fallen angels, as we used to call them in the late 90s. I think that's probably the next wave that we'll see. I mean, you're you mentioned Elon Musk. I think he he mentioned that some of these companies will need to go through a good bankruptcy, and we need to shake out some of uh, some of those kind of companies. Do you, do, I want to follow that up one second, if you would please, Evan. I want to follow up with, with the, the question, Doug, about whether you see some of this building now in the internal dynamics of the speculative grade debt market or the so-called leveraged loan market, the tradable the, the tradable bank debt of companies rated speculative grade. Um, are you starting to see spreads widen? Are you starting to see uh, bids become a little bit reluctant? Any sign, signs of yeah, tension? Not really. I mean, we, we tend to stay in the higher end. I mean, we, we make markets in investment grade ETFs and then corporates that underlie it. We, for obvious reasons, you know, uh, we'll trade in market, make a lot of HYG, but we'll take a lot, you know, which is the high, big high yield uh, ETF, but we'll, we'll take a, a more conservative view, shall I say, with regard to that. So so I think there you've seen, uh, certainly within the high yield market, you're seeing more um, widening of spreads and and more speculation, et cetera, which is natural, but it hasn't. I haven't yet seen um, sharp moves in the investment grade market. I still think that there's, you know, because there's so many CLOs that have so much money and this, you know, this, this paper tends to get traded around, um, you know, until you have some big seminal bankruptcy or in or uh, liquidation event, which would trigger uh, the marketplace kind of like, you know, uh, if you sadly remember, I'm sure you do what happened, you know, to the Bear, the Bear Stearns uh, uh, CLOs in, in 2007, until you have an event like that, um, you don't really see it rippling through what we do in the capital markets world. The, the Bloomberg's Barclays aggregate fund. God, this is so unit. negative. Can we can we talk about something uplifting? Well, when you when you get a Are you always you like a, this, Jim? Come on, yeah. When you get a crazy, you know, libertarian anarchist on here to talk about things, you get you had you know just yeah you get, yeah. yeah yeah you got me you're guilty. Yeah. <laughs> Evan, I'm just a markets guy. I just let the markets leave them alone. Let them operate. Yeah, Come on. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. I, Evan, I think that's saying. a great sentiment. I've just not seen it in practice. 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's amazing. Like, you know, the retail, you know, uh, just uh, giving my public service message here on what we do, like, you know, the, the retail markets in this country, and, and Jim, you, you can speak to this better than I can, since I've only been doing this 15 years, but to the notion that we have zero commission trading and subpenny price execution in the top 500 names in the United States, and then penny wide execution in like another 7,500 with instantaneous guaranteed execution. And somebody in Washington thinks that somehow that needs to be improved is just shocking. Just shocking. I mean, there are so many things that need to be improved uh, and looked at in advance of that. And we trade all over the world. And I can tell you that our system here and the deal that the retail investor gets in this country is so superior to any other country. It's amazing. Frankly, they get a better deal than our, than our institutional investor clients get in this country. So the notion the, that Gensler yeah. and the SEC is looking at this is just crazy. Who sang the, so, uh, the song, the lyrics of which go, maybe Henry, you know this, but um, they uh, saw paradise and put up a parking lot. Yeah, uh, Joni Mitchell. Yeah, Joni Mitchell. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So Gary Gensler wants to build a parking lot. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Don't let a good crisis go to waste, and especially when Elizabeth Warren is telling you to go do something. I guess. Yeah. But I, but um, I see um, that uh, you were quoted here, Doug, as saying that um, I say here. This is uh, my briefing paper from Evan. <laughs> that uh, although, as you can see in our supplemental materials, maybe this was a, a handout to the investors, the shared volumes from retail remain strong at over two times what they were in 2018-19. To us, this indicates long-term resilience of the retail investor. Yes. Okay. Has the retail investor truly been tried in the past dozen years? I mean, this, uh, 2000, yeah. March 2020 was uh, like 15 minutes. Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I, you know, you remember, uh, I guess, the dot-com crisis or the dot-com situation where a lot of people got wiped out. And what I've always said, I think a number of structural things have changed. Obviously, you have proliferation of zero commission brokerages and, and technology. People can get access to markets on their handheld, and that didn't exist in, in 2000. Uh, that's the first thing. The second thing which I think is actually more important is if you look at the names that uh, you know, Fidelity and Schwab and all of our other great clients send us uh, from retail investors. They really are much more Tesla and Amazon than they are, you know, GameStop and AMC and, you know, uh, X, Y, and Z names that you never heard of. Whereas 20 years ago, um, you know, you had like, you know, Webvan and like, you know, uh, uh, dogfood.com and all of these, you know, and a bunch of telecom companies that had no revenue and a bunch of just companies, frankly, that shouldn't have been public companies were just pure speculation. You have some of that today, but retail investors are actually buying, trading, selling, holding, you know, real companies that have real uh, revenues and real EBITDA. You know, you can argue whether Tesla is worth $100 or $1,000, but it's not worth zero, right? So that to me is the difference. And so, point we're trying to make to our investors, um, which we're not always successful with, is that this is not a cyclical change. It's not just because people were sitting home with their stimulus checks in their underwear in their basement with nothing to do. The, the growth of retail trading and self-directed trading predated the pandemic. It's when Schwab decided to match Robinhood and go to zero commission trading and then E-Trade and Fidelity and frankly, everybody else did. You saw a big jump in people interested in self-directed trading. And so that genie is not going back into the bottle is the point that we've made. Well, it may not be like you know January 21 when you had these enormous meme stock names that were just trading huge volume. Like, you know, that has come and gone, but still the bar 
has been raised substantially. It's been a real you, structural change yeah. in retail participation. That's the key. But you had uh, you had zero commissions coupled with zero percent uh, funding costs. Yeah, true. Now, now you only got one of those left. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So look, I mean, you know, there's there's as I said before, sadly, people will exit the market and no longer be day traders, right? Maybe they should probably go off and try to do something else. But still, self-directed trading, which I think is easier, which is a better way to describe it than. Uh, than retail trading, I think, is here to stay, mm-hmm. in, you know, in okay. size. And frankly, uh, to, again, just to be a crazy libertarian, I think that's one of the things that actually, you know, frightens some of the quote-unquote progressives down in Washington is, you know, we've empowered this class of people to trade on their own. Well, now they should be able to vote stock on their own, right? Take it away from institutional. You know, uh, a lot of folks in Washington are complaining that BlackRock and Vanguard have too much power, right? Because they have all these proxies. Well, if you have 15, 20% of the market is self-directed, you know, they should be able to vote their shares on their own as well. So they become much more important political force. That's not good for some folks in Washington. Yeah, they want victims. (laughs) Okay, your words, not mine. Okay. Evan, do you have anything else for our guest? Yeah, I'd love if you just wouldn't mind opining. Um, We had quantitative tightening once before. It ended in 2018 when the market sold off and the Fed kind of lost its stomach for for delivering pain to the market. But the Fed just began its latest QT on June 1st, and it's initially going to be at $47.5 billion and ramp up to um, uh, $95 billion by September. What impact, if any, does this kind of have on, I guess, market liquidity and kind of, you know, the business of making markets? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. As I mentioned before, I mean, it's, uh, you know, on one level, again, I don't want to cheer about like, uh, you know, inflation and, and whatnot. Obviously, there are some negative effects to that. But all of those assets rippling through the marketplace, you know, it's like you throw a giant, not a pebble, you throw a giant boulder into a pond. And in this interconnected 24 by 5 global marketplace, it just has impact everywhere, uh, which means that, you know, you're going to see a rise in uh, you know, volatility proxies around the world, and you're going to see folks that are going to make meaningful, you know, large players making meaningful portfolio shifts, and they're going to need immediacy, which means they're going to need liquidity, which means that spreads will widen out and means that, you know, that, that's opportunities for firms like ours. But that means you'll have a reduction in liquidity because uh, you'll need it more. There's less participants, and that's going to increase volatility. So, in a way, Evan, it becomes a little bit of a vicious cycle. So again, I'm not a macro guy, and I'm certainly not employed by the Fed, and they don't really care what I have to say. But um, it's it's not going to be the easiest thing to effectively puke out um, assets like that. I don't think that people understand how interconnected the marketplace is and the fragility of some of of these markets. And liquidity comes at a cost, right? So then there'll be an uproar about, oh my God, spreads are too wide. These firms did this and that. Oh you know, HFT, blah, blah, blah. But really what it all comes down to is, as you say, you know, when you're trying to price, uh, reprice and, and readjust literally trillions of dollars of assets, there's a cost to it. Well, Doug, this, is, this has been uh, terrific. And um, what a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, thank you for your information. People say thank you for your time, which is indeed precious. But uh, thank you for the uh, decades of worth of knowledge that you have delivered to us so much in your debt. I appreciate it. Thanks very much, gentlemen. Yeah. Evan, thank you for talking again. You know, I guess you have to, but thank you anyway. Henry, pleasure to see you. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Till the next time, this is uh, Jim Grant on behalf of Current Yield Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. 